Welcome to this episode of the Wellness for Educators podcast. My name is Dr. Katherine Kennedy, and I'm the founder and executive director of Wellness for Educators. We are a 501c3 nonprofit based in Maine, serving educators worldwide. We are invested in and passionate about supporting educators with trauma and equity-informed practices and strategies for mental health and well-being, as well as social and emotional learning. This episode of the podcast is a very special one for us because we are cross-publishing as a sister podcast for another podcast called Coffee with a Little Bit of Cream. This podcast was started by the vice president of our board, Shamari Jones, who also serves as the director of equity and family engagement at Bellevue School District in Bellevue, Washington. Along with a colleague of his, Dr. Paul Sutton, who serves as an assistant professor of education at Pacific Lutheran University, they are partnering for impactful change. On their podcast, Shamari and Paul examine issues that impact education and the education system and ways that issues of race, power, and privilege impact students, educators, schools, districts, and the larger educational system. The topic of this episode is the concept of racial stamina and what it has to do with personal wellness and well-being. Joining Shamari and Paul for this episode is Dr. Ashok Shimoji Krishnan, a child and adolescent psychologist at Kaiser Permanente in the Pacific Northwest. We are so excited to serve as a sister podcast for Shamari and Paul. We're grateful for the opportunity to amplify their mission and purpose, exploring the many ways that our personal lived experiences help us understand our racialized identities, our power, and our privilege in the world as people and educators with a goal of creating a collective sense of understanding and empathy around these issues. A special shout out to Rebecca Meter, their amazing producer extraordinaire. Let's jump in. Welcome to the Wellness for Educators podcast. I'm Paul Sutton and along with Shamari Jones, I'm one of your hosts. In today's podcast, we have a wide ranging conversation with Ashok Shimoji Krishnan, who is a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Kaiser Permanente in the Pacific Northwest about the nature of Robin DiAngelo's concept of racial stamina and what it has to do with personal wellness and well-being. We discuss how families of color build racial stamina in their children so they can safely navigate public spaces such as schools and the ways white adults and teachers can better support students of color to help them succeed. In addition, we discuss the responsibility white people have to both build and sustain their racial stamina and ways we can work with people of color to work towards personal and systemic change so that people of color feel safer navigating public spaces. We hope you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as we enjoyed engaging in it. Okay, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to our next episode. I am really excited today to engage in some really depth of conversation, some amazing uh, dialogical debate around racial stamina, uh, both between Paul and I, and today we also have a special guest who will be joining us, who will introduce himself in a moment. Um, I absolutely am excited about the sun that is out today and um, is making me feel incredibly energized. And um, I think that this is going to be a really great episode because my soul is in it today, Paul. 
about to get a little bit jiggy with it. Um, you know, I'll start again by just thanking on the backhand our producer, Rebecca, who's in the background listening and providing us with support. Um, and we'll launch a little bit um, after everyone does their introduction with some conversation around racial stamina, which I tend to not have a whole lot of anymore in my age. But today, I definitely have some stamina for this conversation. And looking at the smile on my uh, two fellow gentlemen's faces, they do too. And so let's get into it. Uh, Paul, if you'd introduce yourself and then we'll go uh, into a show. Sure, Shamari. I'm, uh, I'm Paul Sutton. I'm an assistant professor of education at uh, Pacific Lutheran University up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I was an educator for uh, a high school educator for several years, but um, that's just about all you need to know for now. Ashok. My name is Ashok Shimoji Krishnan. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist working at Kaiser Permanente, also in the Northwest. I work with kids and adolescents 17 and under, kind of helping them manage mental health needs and mental health care. Um, and I also do a lot of work on video mental health work, as well as developing programming for the Kaiser Permanente organization in Washington State. Right on. Thank you very much. And so I don't want to uh, delay the richness that we have to offer today. So I just want to jump right on in. And, um, you know, we had some, some pre-engaged conversations around this subject matter. And uh, when we even were listing out for today's show, what were some of the topics and things that we wanted to highlight and, and, and press upon? Uh, the first thing we landed on was the definition of racial stamina and what it means to us. Uh, and Paul probably doesn't want to go in this direction, but I'm kind of just feeling uh, right now that I want to uh, foremost begin to engage in some convo about like how we even define uh, what that racial stamina means and then sort of let the conversation explode in a direction that uh, was pre-planned from there. And so uh, I'm going to lean a little bit on Paul first um, to go into the conversation and um, lead us by defining racial stamina and what that means to you. Sure. Um, so uh, it's, it's my understanding that the definition came out of the work of Robin D'Angelo, um, specifically from her book, uh, White Fragility. And how she defines it is basically the, uh, this, this concept of the extent to which uh, white folks, when they talk about race, are able to hang in the conversation and the extent to which they're able to manage their discomfort when they are talking about race, especially with um, folks of color. Um, so uh, that's kind of an anchoring, I guess, concept um, uh, around it. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about around racial stamina is not just how, um, how white folks do or don't have it, um, but also the extent to which uh, uh, people of color, and I, I think in particular um, black and brown folks um, are forced to get it in order to survive in the US, right? Are forced to develop it. And the extent to which um, parents, um, black and brown parents feel the need to um, establish some form of racial stamina in their children to make sure that their children can operate in the world. Um, so I, that's kind of one point of interest that I, that I have, not just what D'Angelo says it means for white folks, but then 
you know, the ways in which uh, people of color also have to develop it over time. And I don't know if that phrase really works for that particular concept, but it's, it's one of the areas of interest that I have. Yeah. Um, I want to throw you right into the fire show, you know, and ask you how that lands on you, you know, from the definition that Paul just offered. And, um, you know, you may have seen that definition before um, in some of our pre-conversations, but um, outside of even just the definition itself, like as a male of color, a man of color in this society, in this country, like how does that definition that Paul is offering land on you? I think it provides a very interesting perspective because it, it almost has two different views in the same definition. If you look at people who are white, the definition of racial stamina is how do they hang in this conversation? How long can they endure this conversation with, with it being difficult or challenging? But if you look at people of color, people who are brown and, and black, it's not how long can they hang in this conversation? It's how long can they endure having this conversation? Mm. How long can they endure being the individual who has to explain it and discuss it? And, and off, in many cases, lead that conversation. So there's racial stamina, but it's two different expectations of stamina, which I think leads to a lot of racial fatigue on both parties, because mm -hmm. you see, you know, white people who are just tired of hearing about it or tired of talking about it, and they don't want to, and they can shut down and that's okay for them. Unfortunately, for people of color, we get racially fatigued, we suffer the consequences of that in that we get oppressed, we get pushed down, we get ignored or pushed to the side. And, you know, personally, being a person of color and being a child of immigrants who came to this country, you know, I had to witness that where, you know, being a person of color, my parents didn't necessarily teach racial stamina. They taught more of how do you blend in? How do you fade into the background so that your race becomes less of a factor because you're acting more like the dominant race here? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people of color who come into the country with that viewpoint of how do we not rock the boat? And you hear that predominantly in families who are of East Asian Orient um, or, you know, of Indian orientation. And then you hear a different perspective and a different view of people who are Black or people who are Latino because they are coming in and they're seen as a threat as opposed to seen as, oh, they're going to work with the dominant culture, which is typically white here. Mm -hmm. And so all of that leads to different explanations for my view of what racial stamina is because we're expressing and, and and using the stamina in very different ways to achieve kind of our goals within each racial pocket. Mm. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening to our show today. Ashok just shut us down. This is the conclusion <laughs> of the show. Um, <laughs> thank you for coming. No, thank, that was really great. Um, <clears throat> I appreciate that perspective because Paul, what he did is encapsulate, you know, in a, in a couple of short phrases, the entire experience that I as a black man um, have on, an, on a daily basis in the very work that I do to try to support mm -hmm. uh, dominantly people who look like me, right? There is um, a consistency of people who are just exhausted the fact that I'm even coming to you to have this conversation. They're just tired. And you know what? I'm really tired too, you know? Um, at some point, like, it's nice to actually have a moment where I can smile about it, you know, and, and sit in a space where I can reflect on the journey that I've been on um, and even give myself a pat on the back for even persisting 
you know, and even continuing to have this uh, racial stamina because it is a intense journey for some people um, who have to continue to uphold the pillars of what it means to transform uh, people's mindsets from one perspective to another uh, without the support of others. So as an example, I tell people all the time that when hired into roles like the role that I get hired into, um, it gives many people this sense of reprieve, like, okay, I no longer have to do this work because we have someone to do the work for us, right? And the pressure that that implies and applies on my daily experience uh, is very conflict-ridden. Um, and I, I myself actually am surprised that I've been uh, capable of sustaining for almost seven years in the work. Because uh, as I've mentioned before, this job really yields a three to four year term um, before you're just so exhausted that you're ready to move on to something that has no relationship to what it is that you're doing in this world. And so, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating piece, Paul. And I'm, uh, I'm interested how that uh, sits for someone such as yourself who comes from a background that is um, founded upon whiteness, um, uh, you merged into an infrastructure uh, that was created in whiteness, the education system, and now you have come out the other side with a newfound understanding that you yourself have a responsibility in this role. What is that responsibility as a white male in dominance in our country? What is your responsibility um, when it comes to the racial stamina that others, and I will preclude this by saying that um, just yesterday I was talking to some uh, colleagues who are of color and saying that it is not your responsibility to lift your own self up out of the spaces that you've been mired to like exist within, like the box that has been created for you. It's not your responsibility to A, identify the box in and B, bust through the box because sometimes the challenge is real and the ability to do that is none, right? The real responsibility lies on um, those of us who are in uh, privilege and positions of authority and especially those who have dominance even within those realms. And so I'm just wondering to you, like what does that mean to you as uh, a person who has such a finger on the pulse of the experience that young people are having as they enter into our education system. So I think Ashok, that's uh, that's to you. Oh, I apologize. I thought that was to you, Paul. No, that's to Paul. That's to Paul. Oh, it's to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I. So this concept, you know, I I've come a little bit late to I think Robin D'Angelo's work, and um, I think I first read her book two or three years ago. Um, or when, whenever it first came out, I mean, it's 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 a real thing. I mean, to me anyway. Like I, I, it's very common for me to be in white spaces because the communities that I live in and operate in are very segregated. It's been also common when I'm in those spaces that white folks, when they are together, don't often talk about race, mostly because we don't have to. Um, and when those conversations do come up. Um, there's almost, I don't want to call it a script, but there's a way in which the conversation happens, right? And a lot of it is about talking about 
the racism of others and not really the racism within ourselves. And I don't know whether that's a defense mechanism or that's just the way whites can sometimes conceptualize it. Um, but when I, when I, in my work, when I, when I am trying to prepare um, folks to be teachers, which is what I spend most of my time doing, um, it's really, really hard to get them to the point where they have racial stamina, because I think that's a lifelong thing. You have to be intentionally and constantly submerging yourself in conversations about race to develop the stamina. And um, it's kind of a want to thing, right? I can, in any given class period, because I'm the teacher, I can make my teacher candidates consider really highly charged, you know, uh, race topics or be in race conversations. Um, but they can cognitively engage the conversation, but that, but then not be part of it. Right. So it's one of those things they have to, I, I, part of my training of them and my educating of them is to teach them that it's okay to be part of that conversation and that it's expected because they're going to need to be having those conversations on some level with students. So they need to build up the stamina themselves. Um, yeah. And I, you know, talking about, talking about my role as like a teacher educator, that this makes me really interested Ashok in the work you do. So like I, I wonder when you are working with youth, adolescents, little kids, I, like I wonder, you know, what in your mind is the impact of race on kids, both kids who identify as white and kids who identify as children of color? Like, is that, is that, to what extent is it a deeply integrated part of their identity? And then to what, like, and then when does that happen? So we see this at a variety of different times based on a kid and how attuned or how invested they are in the community they live in. So for, and I can't really stratify based on race, but what I tend to see is the kids who are really heavily invested in their communities, the kids who live and grow and either see themselves as part of a particular culture or they see themselves as separate from a particular culture. Those are the ones that I identify really strongly. So what I mean by that is if you see a, you know, a white kid living in a predominantly white neighborhood, they've done a lot of things surrounded by white people. They're going to identify as that's the norm because they think I, this is how my, my lived in experience, everyone experiences stuff like this. So they kind of attach to that. You take a person of color who grew up in a predominantly, you know, a black neighborhood or a brown neighborhood. And then you have them in a situation where they can't achieve or attain some of the things that they see you know, white kids at school attain or achieve because, you know, for factors they don't quite understand, they see themselves as a separate or as an other culture. And they make, it makes it really hard to rectify and reconcile why can't I, as a brown or black person, get the same things that this white person who I see or know can get. And I tend to see that ingrained pretty young in kids, to be honest. I've seen, you know, kids as young as three, four, five who have just ingrained that. And they're taking that on and they walk into school with this sense of, I can't do what my peer can do, hmm. or I can do what my peer can do, or I can do more than what my peer can do. And you see that with kids just walking in. Mm -hmm. So, okay, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I have to add, like, why does that, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of folks will assume that really, really little kids are quote unquote colorblind, that they're not necessarily, they don't maybe, see themselves as having like a racialized identity. So it's really interesting to me that you're saying that kids really early on, some kids have that, like, why does that happen? How does that happen? 
you know, my suspicion, and I don't have a clear sense of that, and I've done a little bit of reading on this. There's not a lot of research as far as of now into this, but a lot of it, I think, comes down to what they're seeing in their community. So if they're in a community that's mixed and blended and they basically see people around them who may look like them, may not look like them, there's much more of a likelihood of just being that colorblind or at least acknowledging, yeah, race is a factor, but it's not an important one for me at this moment. Mm -hmm. If you're in a predominant group where it's all mm -hmm. homogenous and you don't see anything different, you end up taking that on and you own that a lot more. And then on top of that, you end up adding parental attitudes, other family support attitudes, community attitudes on that. And by the time you're five, you've probably heard, oh, you know, white people are the worst people in the world or black people are the worst people in the world. You've started hearing that and you internalize that and you start understanding and recognizing, hey, that person is different from me. As a result, I'm not gonna trust that person because I've been ingrained and told not to. Mm. So kids inherently on their own, if they left to their own devices, probably would stay pretty color neutral. But the minute that we have external biases and parental biases and other things like that, you end up seeing these biases develop and grow and flourish in ways that are unintended or pretty detrimental to other communities or just to intercommunity relations. Yeah, so you know, really this interesting is interesting to see and it's really challenging. I mean, in my clinical practice, as an example, I've had plenty of kids of color come in and they meet me and they're like, wait, you're a person of color and you're in a medical profession or you're in a specialist field. I've never seen that before. And I've seen people who are in the dominant culture who are like, I'm not going to go see that person because I can't pronounce that person's name. And clearly they're not from here. So I've heard both ends of the spectrum. And so, you know, the more that we show people in a variety of positions, whether it's leadership positions, whether it's, you know, being the person who works at the grocery store, the person who's educating you, the person who's the president of the United States, the more we show diversity in all these different fields, the more we start showing that kids really can do anything regardless of their race. But you have to show that and demonstrate that and make it so that race isn't the primary factor. The minute you don't, they're going to attach to that because that's the culture they know. Yeah, that is uh, <clears throat> that statement may be one of the most heartbreaking statements that I think I've heard in a really long time. Um, and a lot of that heartbreak for me really resonates around this idea that infrastructurally where we are, like the construct of your family's makeup, the resources you have access to. Um, and everything that revolves around you once you come out of the womb mm -hmm. impacts your ability to, you know, have a footprint in this world and where that footprint is going to land on the continuum of success, right? Which is really challenging, Paul, right? That challenges my entire profession to know that there may be some individuals who uh, come out with such disadvantage to their ability to succeed that maybe some of the things that we offer are, you know, a little too little and maybe a little too late um, in support once we get them at age five and sometimes in pre-K, but, you know, generally speaking at age five, when school starts at kindergarten, sometimes it's a little too late and we need to start a whole lot earlier in support here's of some. You know, Shamar, here's the thing to remember also with kids. This is the one, one of the reasons why I love working with kids they are resilient. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, we may get them at four, five, six, seven, but you start showing them things then 
they have a much better chance of changing that trajectory. It is not static, which is really one of the most important things we have to remember with kids. Even with kids going into middle and adolescence and, and middle of school and high school, you end up seeing and you show them more examples, you show them that breadth and that depth, mm -hmm. perspectives can change. It's harder the further along we go, Absolutely. but it doesn't mean that we don't have hope and we can't make change. I mean, we've seen plenty of adults change. I mean, our country, you know, elected a black man as president not very long ago. That wouldn't have not, that would never have happened 20, 30 years ago. Right. So it can happen. It's just, it's consistent and um, it's consistent and concentric work because you're starting, you know, like you said, we're starting not just with birth. We're starting with moms when they're pregnant. We're starting before they're pregnant, getting them established so they have those supports. And you're building every step of the way to show it's not just what their race is, it's everything can play a role and play a factor And how yeah. do we build those systems around them. And that's that. the tricky part is that ongoing development of support from the minute they're born to the minute they're you know all the way through school and into adulthood. And even then it's constant work. It's constant mm -hmm. reframing, reshaping, reminding to ensure that we're being truly open and color neutral. Yeah. So I, Ashok, I, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit, I don't know the extent to which there's research on this yet, but could you speak a little bit to the impact that say um, deficit thinking and the way in which different communities of color are portrayed in the media, are portrayed just out in the world, um, could you talk a little bit about the impact that has on just children's psychology, whether it's a five-year-old or whether it's a 15-year-old? Like, what does that do to them just emotionally, psychologically, physically? Yeah, it's, it is a very challenging thing to look at. I mean, part of it is also you're looking at this in the context of a kid just developing. And through development, there's so many different factors that play a role. But when you have the repeated message that, your culture is the bad culture or your culture, there's something wrong with your culture. And culture can be anything. It can be your religion. It could be your sexual orientation. It can be your race. If there's an ongoing perceived message that whatever culture you're identifying is a bad one or not one we want to aspire to or one that we want to move away from, it's hugely damaging because that culture is a sense of self. What you're essentially telling a kid is you are a bad person is what you're setting them up to hear. And they're hearing that regularly and repeatedly. And over time, that message becomes ingrained. So you see kids who, they stop trying. They don't put the effort in school because they're told, your culture is not the smart culture. Why are you putting that effort in? Or, you know, you can try all you want, but you're never going to be anything. And so after a while, you see these kids just give up in school. I mean, I've seen plenty of kids where elementary school, they're awesome. They're stellar. They're rock stars. They get to middle school and they've heard this message so regularly that they start tailing off. They're like, well, what am I doing? I'm putting all this work in and I'm still kind of stuck. You get them to high school and you're seeing these kids, you know, they're starting to fail classes. They're starting to skip classes. They're dropping out of school. Now, all of a sudden, you set this kid on a trajectory of poor education, poor ability to find ways to make a living. And now you've got them on a path of potential criminal activity, potential substance use, you know, early pregnancies. You're putting them on a path that's setting them up. And this is where the, the notion of the direct school to jail pipeline, mm -hmm. this is part of that process. You don't support these kids early, you're going to watch them fall off. And all of a sudden, they're in a situation where they can't earn money. 
they can't find a living. They can't have a job or a place or anything like that. And now they're trying to do whatever they can to make ends meet. And that in some cases that leads to criminal activity and they go into the pipeline. And so in addition, it's not just what physically happens to the kids, but the emotional toll on these children is huge. We're seeing huge rates of things like anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. All of these things are in way, way more intense numbers than what we would expect to see in a culture where it was truly color neutral. Mm. And I say that because you look at the dominant culture of white people and we see pretty consistent rates of depression and anxiety and you know, things like that in kids. You look in, in smaller communities of people of color or people of different races and we're seeing much bigger numbers the problem is they're not reported as regularly because historically the research is always focused on white and Caucasian. And a lot of the research that we have, you know, to speak on medications or what we use to rate scales or to evaluate is based on Caucasian populations. They're not necessarily normed for people of color. So if you think about it, everything we do has a potential bias <laughs> and you have to be really aware of that to make that change. And we're making significant headway now of looking at all of these rating scales and these medications and these things to see how are we looking at it where we look at our, our population that reflects what we really see. So studies are actually actively recruiting people of color and minorities to ensure that they are targeting an entire spectrum of the population. But 30 years ago, it wasn't done. It was just the birth of that. And you're seeing medications that were based on Caucasian populations we don't know how it impacts a person of African-American race or, you know, a person of Indian race or whatever, because we've never tested it. So it really kind of points to, it's not just the individual race, but it's the whole system that is putting a lot of weight on these kids. And as a result, they're falling off the tracks. You know, I, um, I think that that also really relates to the experience of the adults, you know, that, I have deep connections to who are enrolled similar to mine or not, uh, who in my community or in my region oftentimes are one of the only or one of the very few who look like them in spaces. And there's this consistency of still having to adhere to um, the tenets of staying strong, you know, and sustaining or maintaining that racial stamina in order to survive the day every single day. Uh, and I'm really uh, reflective of the fact that we have to find ways at times to make sure we're engaging in strategies to insist upon our health and well-being. Uh, from the perspective uh, of you working with young people with Shoke, uh on a consistent basis, knowing that the, the need to maintain racial stamina for our younger and developing people uh, is so high right now, and it causes sometimes when it gets overwhelming, as you stated, um, people falling off the map, people uh, not having the attentiveness necessary to engage in school, people committing suicide, you know, um, leading to potential drug and alcohol activity, etc. Um, strategies, are there ones that you would suggest for our young people that would help our young people to continue to sustain in this environment that the adults like Paul and I who work within this education system cannot fix just yet. We're working towards it, but we're just not at the precipice of change at this moment. Honestly, the biggest thing, probably the number one, number two, number three thing that I always advocate is listen. 
kids have a story to tell. They know their story. Even the little ones, they can point out something was weird. They may not have the language. They may not have the sophisticated words or whatnot, but they know when things are off. Listen, listen, listen. The biggest way that I've, you know, engaged with kids and even engaged with kids who are of different backgrounds of me, you know, is I sit there and say, tell me what's going on, what's happening. And I give them space to do so. I don't corral them. I don't correct them. I let them talk. And then it's asking questions once they've told their story, whatever they're comfortable with is, that sounds really hard. What do you mean by this? Or how is this done? Or how did you feel that way? Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things with kids is if you listen and you reframe what they say so they can hear it in an adult's words, it gives them more language to explain and express their thoughts. And most importantly, it makes them feel heard. And now all of a sudden, instead of being an adult, you're an ally. And that is huge because for our young people, they need as many allies as they can get because people are going to be tough and people are hard to open up to. If they find that person or persons they can relate to, they're going to come to you. And if they know that you have their back and you'll go help them when they say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what's going on. They'll go to you and they'll talk to you and they're open. And it, that is huge, even for adolescents, even the most difficult adolescents I've ever worked with. I gave them their space and they talked and they spoke and they explained and they expressed. And I came in with with as little judgment or as little bias as I can. And where I, and the biggest thing for us as adults is we carry our own inherent biases. We have our own judgments. And if we're gonna work with youth, we've got to temper that, we got to hold that and say, you know what, I have this bias, but that is not this person. The bias is this generic thing that I've learned. This is this person in front of me and I need to hear their story 100% and ask questions where I don't know. All right, so let me reframe this for you then. Yep. Um, in my community, there are not a lot of folks who readily um, seek out the support mm -hmm. of an adult uh, yep. when they themselves are having a challenge when they're young people I'm referring to. Yep. Um, or if they do, they're very selective yep. on the adult that they're going to choose to connect with, mm -hmm. uh, or at least at that level of depth. Uh, and that adult might not have the skill set Mm -hmm. to um, adhere to like a protocol similar to what uh, you've just mentioned. And so what are the skills or strategies that I can um, advise to students mm -hmm. that they can use to help to mitigate some of the stresses that they feel every day when they're permeating these hallways, not seeing people who look like them in classrooms where the, the book that they're reading has the N-word in it, you know, the isolation that they feel, the sense yeah. of not feeling success because those around them tell them that they have no chance of being successful, et cetera. What do I advise them to do differently? You know, that's a really, really tough question. And it's one that I have spent a lot of time racking my brain. And the best thing I found is I've asked kids what would help them. And sometimes kids give you an answer. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're super innovative. What I have found for a lot of kids and adolescents is a lot of them will connect to people who look like them in their communities, whether it's in school or where they work or just in their community in general, connecting to those people. But for us as adults, it's often being able to go into those spaces and saying, look, I'm coming here to learn about you. And I'm coming here to figure how we can help get your message out there. And so it's building and finding those people who can be allies 
And what I advocate for a lot of youth is particularly adolescents is find those people in your school that you feel you trust. And it may be one person. It may not be a ton of people, but let them hear your story. Let them learn about you and acknowledge they're going to ask questions. They're going to not understand stuff and they're going to potentially misinterpret, give them their space to misunderstand and misinterpret, but let them learn and ask questions about you so you can help correct them. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, you educate one person. You educate one person, they can take that and educate another adult. Now you got two people who are educated and it's building this process of educating others. It's unfortunately a bit of pressure on, an, on a youth to be able to say, I'm gonna educate this adult about me and about what I'm experiencing. But the thing I always tell an adolescent is simply, nobody knows your story but you. We all see your story from our perspective, but we don't know your story. You've got to tell and express that story. Otherwise, it's going to be misinterpreted or misconstrued. Yeah. And if you don't share it, we won't know. And that's kind of how I approach a lot of the kids I work with is I know mental health stuff. I know depression. I know anxiety. I know these things. I don't know your depression or your anxiety. So translate that as I understand the concept of racism. I understand the concept of you know racial stamina. I don't know your racial stamina or your experiences with racism. And that's for me to learn about, but you have to express that so I can learn. Yeah. And by there we can build that coalition and develop something bigger. So, so uh, that's, that's so interesting. Um, I, so I spent some time as a high school English teacher. And as you were talking, I was thinking about all the different kinds of students who um, would show up to my classroom after school and just talk to me about stuff. And if I'm being honest, vast majority of those kids identified as white. Mm -hmm. um, I, as, as both you and Shamari were talking, and Shamari, you and I have talked about this many times before about how um, white folks need to be engaged in this work. Um, and, you know, we, but we need to do so kind of carefully. And so Ashok, I'm, I'm wondering, like, when you think of, when you think of educators out there, when you think of neighbors, when you think of just you know, uh, lots of the communities I think where um, folks are listening to this, the, those communities are fairly segregated. I know that 80 to 85% of educators out there identify as white. So what is, what is the role in your mind of white parents, white families, white educators mm -hmm. to better support kids who are, as Shamari so eloquently put it, like essentially just struggling to make it through day by day you know, the biggest thing is you have to prove as a person who's white, it's not, you're not going to be trusted immediately. You're not going to be trusted readily. You have to prove you're an ally. You have to prove that you're willing to listen, you're willing to engage, and you're willing to take the next step because a lot of cult minority cultures, they're not going to trust a person outside of their culture. And given the way that this country has historically been, you know, oppressive towards minority cultures, a lot of minorities have learned that white people have a lot of power and they're not necessarily to be trusted. So the first step for anybody who wants to be an ally is to prove you're an ally. And that's where for white people, that's their racial stamina. It's proving over and over and over again that you're an ally, you're to be trusted and you will work with people of color. And that's the challenging part. It's that's the hard part because people who, experience and have that one great conversation, excuse me, they're like, hey, I did it, I'm in, I've done it. But no, <laughs> that was one awesome conversation. 
there are a hundred other conversations out there need to happen and you need to prove again you are capable of listening and understanding and being part of that conversation and following the direction and lead of others who are experiencing the racism or experiencing the oppression in whatever capacity that is and you know the biggest thing i found for families particularly parents of younger kids it's being able to expose their kids to literature to media of different cultures you know it's being able to expose your kids to what you know african-american music look like or what you know food from different cultures looks like what books are from written from different cultures perspective the music all of it if you do that you raise kids who are have an awareness of hey their culture is different from mine and they produce cool stuff. There's interesting things out there. Every culture has a value. Every race comes with a value. The minute you teach that to kids, kids stop seeing, they stop seeing race more. So they start seeing, hey, you're cool because you have all these cool skills that I don't have. How can I learn some of those skills and teach you things that I have? Now you're building partnerships. Now you're building coalitions that spread across race. And it's that challenge of... Oh. Choke froze. Yeah. I hope he comes back. No, you will. Give it a sec. There you go. You came there back. There you go. <laughs> so we can edit that out. <laughs> um, so you were, uh, Ashok, you were talking about um, the more that you can expose kids in particular white children to different cultures and different ways of knowing the world, the better equipped they will be to, to interact with folks who are different than them. Right, because it's no longer this entity of, oh, you're different. Now it's, oh, hey, I've heard a little bit about you. You've done this. And so we, we can kind of, we have something to build on and you can build a relationship because there's some common ground. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. the biggest factor is if we build those common grounds, we have more opportunities to build things that can grow bigger and better and be bigger than just our race and bigger than just the individual people. Yeah. yeah. Um, Paul, I'm wondering um, throughout this conversation and this, um, a lot of this, this uh, dialogue has been focused on the racial stamina of uh, BIPOC folks, you know, and particularly students and students of color. Uh, and from an adult, white male adult perspective, I'm wondering from you, like, what do you need in order to sustain or even like expand upon your own personal racial stamina? I, I mean, I, I, we, well, I, I don't, I don't want to speak for all white folks. Um, I think you have to get yourself to the place where where you can understand that you're not gonna be accepted the first time, the second time, the third time, kind of that trust thing that Ashok was talking about. You have to understand that you have a very fraught history and that even though you may not have done very many explicitly racist acts in your life, that when you are seen by some folks of color, you are going to be seen as a deeply, as a member of a race that has been deeply problematic for their community, right? You, 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 it's a mistake to respond with a certain level of fragility that like, I didn't own slaves. I didn't segregate that community. You know, I didn't keep those kids out of schools. 
right? I, I think white folks have to enter these conversations acknowledging their history as a white person, even if it's not connected to their individual history, mm-hmm. right? Like there seems to be, when I talk to some white folks, there is this tendency to, and this need to see themselves as individuals, as somewhat disconnected from a larger national or local history. And I think one of the reasons why white folks do this is that then we don't have to acknowledge what whiteness has done to other folks. And I think that is like one of the most central mistakes that white folks make, right? Just being able to acknowledge that like, because I'm a white person, that say that black or brown neighbor I have two houses down is maybe gonna look at me side-eyed until they really get to know me and trust me. And that's okay. They have every right to look at me that way because they probably have come into contact with hundreds of other white folks who have disappointed them or oppressed them in different ways that they didn't realize. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's, it's futile as a white person to enter in that situation, that conversation, getting pissed off at your neighbor for just doing what your neighbor has been taught over the course of their lifetime is something they need to do to be safe, right? So I think as white people, we just have to get to this point where it's like, we just have to acknowledge that maybe the way we want to see ourselves is not the way other people see us. And that's okay. And that just by making that acknowledgement, we're taking a step towards being able to have deeper conversations with people of color. But Shamari, that's nothing that people of color need to do for us. It's something we have to do on our own, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, 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 it's not your responsibility to get me there. It's my responsibility to do the work so I can have the conversation with you. You know, and and I I just, I, so I uh, I approach it. Yeah, I I let you have that whole piece, uh, Preacher Paul, so I can re-ask the question, what do you need, sir, uh, in order to sustain your racial stamina or to expand upon your racial stamina? I'm going to jump in for a quick second. I want to interrupt you, Paul, and I apologize. But there's a point that you had made, Paul, that I thought was a really interesting dichotomy that we see with racial stamina. Because if you think about it, what you said, Paul, was one of those comments where every person wants to, for white people, they want to see themselves as that individual, not as a representative of their race. Mm -hmm. But for people who are of color, they walk into a situation where they're surrounded by people who are Caucasian, for example, and they're seen as the representative of their race. And now all of a sudden you have this dichotomy of I can't as a brown person or as a black person walk into this group and be seen as me. I have to represent my culture. I have to represent my race. Whereas people of white historically been able to say, yeah, I don't represent racism. And they try to separate themselves from that, which is a huge dichotomy of how people who are of color, the minorities have to represent themselves and their culture versus white people can separate themselves out. So I just wanted to kind of point that out as a, as a key point, that a key differentiating point. Yeah, and that is, I mean, that is such a good point, Ashok. I mean, that is, um, and it's it's a really hard thing, I think, for white individuals to wrap their head around because we are so rarely in spaces where we are the minority, right? And so, and just historically, we've never been asked to think of ourselves as white folks, because the system has done so much work for us to make sure that we get benefits from whiteness, that like we don't 
we don't have to label ourselves as that. It just kind of happens for us because of all these systematic things in place. Um, and to, to your point or to, you know, your question, Shamari, like what do I individually need? I, I try to keep having conversations with folks like you, Shamari, with other folks of color that I have. And I, I think to me, feedback, being held accountable is a gift. It is perhaps the best thing that folks of color can do for me as an individual to make sure that I establish and sustain whatever racial stamina that I have, right? Like being held accountable is a sign that you're doing good work, right? Being given feedback is a sign that you're doing maybe the right work. And so um, for me individually, it's just, it's that feedback. That feedback is what helps me grow, right? Like I, I you, my wife and I will sometimes say that like, um, if you're a white person and you're, you're, you find yourself in conversations about race a lot and no one has pointed out mistakes, either you're not engaged deeply enough or you need to, you need to give folks permission to do that because you're making mistakes. Folks may just be hesitant to tell you you're making them, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, yeah, I mean, the, the feedback and the accountability, I think are just two really big things just for me personally. So that's the only way I know how to grow is through that. Yeah, I appreciate that because um, even that latter statement, the truth will set you free. Um, and ideally, you know, someone giving you their truth, their inner truth about the experience they're having uh, would be a gift in response to uh, you consistently elevating or getting greater amounts of education on how to better yourself in the conversation about race and racial stamina. Um, just be mindful that sometimes people have apprehension of giving their own truth because the consequence does not always benefit them when they are giving their truths, right? The rooms that they're in are not always accepting of the truth that you need so badly in order for your own interpersonal growth. It doesn't respond in a manner that supports the person who's given it to you at all points in times, right? And so uh, to your wife's point, yes, sometimes it's about um, exhibiting more than just the permission, right? Like, because that has a supremacist connotation to yeah. it, but a welcoming of, you know, um, I really would like to hear from you. Um, look, there's, there's, there's no consequence to me hearing from you. It's just my individual interest in growth, you know, and still like you have giving them grace to not be responsible nor beholden to inspiring your growth. I think that's important to remember. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I especially liked your point, Shamari, about letting folks know, you know, there, there won't be negative consequences to what you say. And I think, you know, that just goes back to kind of what we were talking about with trust. You, there needs to be an incredible amount of trust established between two folks between a white person and a person of color. And I think Shamari, you've said to me before that you've had, you've had relationships with folks where you've gone, you know, with white folks, you've gone a certain distance and then something has happened and it's totally taking you back. 
right? And I, I just think folks of color have had so many different situations like that, that I think white folks just have to realize that like, there have been times when we have intentionally or unintentionally done so much harm that we just have to be patient and we have to forefront relationships and trust first before we can expect that folks of color will feel comfortable in our presence and feel comfortable with us personally, right? Sharing parts of themselves. Um, yeah, I, and I, I can't help but think, Ashok, that kids are the same way, yeah. right? The biggest thing with kids is the same thing. It's you've got to earn their trust. You've got to earn, and it's not just earning it, but it's demonstrating it over and over again that you're willing to listen, you're willing to engage. And there's, you know, it's an open, free space for kids to communicate. The minute they feel that something's changing or the minute they feel that there's a potential negative consequence to them communicating as openly, you lose them. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter whether the topic is race or the topic is their medication. If you have a kid who doesn't feel they can trust you, they're not going to, you have to earn it. You have to prove it. And this is kind of one of the things that they taking this to a big picture for a second here is the idea that for us to really tackle and dismantle systemic racism, we have to tackle and dismantle individual racism one by one. We have to target it individually so we have allies and we have a coalition to tackle the systems that are in place. If we don't build those individual relationships and that individual um, ability to kind of tackle these things personally, we're not going to tackle these big pictures. And that's where that trust comes in. That's where that open space comes in. That's where that communication piece is huge. So we're not going to tackle this by tackling the systems. We're going to tackle this by tackling the people and tackling our views that we come in with and breaking it down and really opening each other's eyes about what am I coming in with? What are you coming in with? How do we make that different? Hmm. I got two, uh, two questions that are going to lead us in two different directions. So I'm going to choose which one to ask first. Um, okay, so in, in our community here, um, and all of us hail from a similar you know, community, um, we have over the past couple, maybe few years experienced, and you mentioned this earlier, Ashok, a tremendous amount or uptick in um, suicides amongst students of color and uh, at an alarming rate. And the adults around them who care for those students oftentimes did not see this coming. Uh, they did not um, catch the signs of what it's going to take in order to um, make sure that the student has what they need, nor did they catch the sign that this student is declining to the point of no longer wanting to be here any longer. Um, and this is a question that you're likely going to answer with, you know, each case is very individualized and uh, I'm not sure how to give anything that's relatively specific, but as adults who are surrounded by young people that we care for and that we love, um, are there things that we should be looking for um, with regard to some of these students, especially this incredible uptick in students of color who are experiencing such trauma, which I most definitely am attributing to, um, they've peaked out on the racial stamina that mm -hmm. um, they have been given and they haven't any more tools to continue to grow in stamina in a way that will suffice what the challenges are that they're experiencing. 
adult-wise, is there something we should be looking for or some way that we should be uh, loving differently so that our students can sustain safety uh, and no, no longer want to take their own lives? You know, there's, you know, to quote one thing you said, every case is individual, but there are some general guidelines that I always look at. It's, again, engaging those kids as much as possible. If they feel they've got somebody who cares about them, somebody who is invested in them and somebody who wants to see them succeed, that is a huge protective factor for these kids and youth because they feel, hey, I feel that this person cares and trusts me and wants me to be around. That is a huge protective factor. That, in a sense, gives them pause mm. to think about, wait, I don't want to hurt this person that I care about because they've shown so much about how much they care about me. The other thing I always advocate is look for change in kids. Kids who are doing well, they tend to follow the status quo. They push ahead, they do their academics, they engage, they come to class. What I start worrying about is I see a kid who's suddenly skipping classes. They're not doing their work anymore. They're disengaging. They're, they're talking back or seeming more upset or more irritable on a regular basis. They're having a harder time engaging. You start seeing those things happen on a consistent basis that starts making me wonder what's going on, what's changed, why are we struggling more when we weren't before? And is that's this, the time to jump in and say, hey, I'm noticing this with what's going on. Do you want to talk about it? Can I help you in any way? And yeah. again, come in with that open and very, you know, this is a safe space for you to just talk and engage. Uh, it goes back to a question I was asking you earlier around um, – like the professionalism of the people whose students choose to tell mm -hmm. um, that they're having a problem or maybe not tell, maybe these signs have mm -hmm. really sort of exposed themselves in a classroom space with teachers. This question gets, goes to you, Paul, with teachers who potentially were never trained for how to notice those signs. Paul, are there things in the College of Ed that you all are making aware uh, to your teacher candidates around here are the things that you should be looking for these changes that might mean that there is this problem that's existing in the life of this student like what's happening on a teacher prep side um, some of the better programs are spending time on trauma-informed um, practices or just um, ensuring the teacher candidates have a sense of what trauma might look like but that I think that's like more of a narrow band, if I could say that, of things. I mean, I, I some of your better teacher education programs will hammer over and over and over again that one of the most proactive things teachers can do in the classroom, two of the most proactive things teachers can do in the classroom is to ensure that every single classroom that they lead, every class they lead, there is a very strong sense of belonging in that classroom um, and that every child is treated with a sense of dignity and love and care. And all of that comes from a wellspring of relationships, right? So it's pretty typical for, I think, average folks to think of when you're learning how to be a teacher, you're learning how to teach content. And I try, I personally, I try to teach my teacher candidates that they're not teaching content, they're teaching students, you're teaching kids, mm -hmm. right? So you've got to really get to know who those kids are um, in order to teach them the content the way in which it will resonate most deeply with them. One of the really nice byproducts of taking that approach is that 
is that kids come to trust their teachers and come to see their teachers as those folks they could go to if stuff is happening. Um, now you layer on top of that the need to provide teacher candidates with really strong anti-bias, anti-racist training and support um, that needs to be there as well. But that's kind of the way the field has approached it, Shamari. But I say that also knowing that we're nowhere near there yet because there's tons of classrooms and tons of schools where there are teachers that don't do any of that or maybe do half of those things or maybe don't think that taking that having strong relationships with kids is their job, right? So like there's a lot of work to be done on my side of the equation with that. Yeah, thank you. Jumping in, Paul, also one thing that I would advocate is building an awareness and a relationship with the school mental health personnel. If kids oh, yeah. know these folk are around, that's another resource they have, but we have to make it so these individuals have time in classrooms, have time to just be present to say, hey, look, I am available, here's a resource. And that also ties into destigmatizing mental health care and caring for those things. Because as we know with a lot of cultures, particularly cultures of color, we tend to look at mental health care a little more, again, with a little more mistrust compared to people who are white because they've historically neither not been available for us or they've treated us so poorly. And so coming in and saying, I'm, you know, I'm a person of the mental health world and I'm here to help, we come in with a lot of baggage for a lot of cultures and a lot of backgrounds, but we have to present ourselves as I'm here and I'm open and I'm a safe space for you to communicate whatever you need to communicate. Yeah. Additionally, and this is just something I have seen in some of the schools um, in the community is it's not just creating these mental health spaces for the students, it's creating them for teachers. Mm -hmm. Because teachers do secondhand experience a lot of trauma that their students are experiencing because they're hearing about it, they're learning about it. And that is very difficult for some teachers to parse out and to kind of own. So you have to create the safe space, not just for the student to communicate, but for the teacher to kind of process that information and then figure out how to go to the next step, whatever that may be. So it's both that are super important. And Shamari, can I, there's one more thing I wanna add um, to the list of things I pointed out. Um, I think it is just absolutely crucial for teachers to get better at establishing really strong connections to families in the community. I think we do, at least from the teacher ed side, I think we do a piss poor job of that. And I, I, I think it's, it's a powerful thing when students know that their teachers have strong relationships with their parents and with their community and is working in collaboration and cooperation with their families and their communities in order to make, make school a more meaningful place. And, you know, we, we, in the teacher ed field, we do a lot of talk about that, but it, it, we're not really good at preparing our candidates to do that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Ashok, is there like a perfect state, you know, at the end of the day and we fixed it all? <laughs> like Shamari and Paul, the Shamari and Paul show <laughs> has fixed <laughs> it all, right? And, and we have, we've found a pathway towards ensuring that uh, every student felt affirmed and so much so that they didn't have to go through this racial stamina uh, exercise of, you know, sort of checking to ensure that you have on the right jacket today to be able to take the amount of um, weight or the amount of bullets that you're going to receive uh, for that day. It, when we reach that state and we've gotten there, 
um, and all is Zen, what would it have taken for us to get there? If we ever get to that state, I will probably be out of a job and I would not be happier about that. <laughs> yeah, I would be ecstatic really. if we get there. Really. You know, I think the biggest things that we're looking at is we're looking at a system that values each student individually, regardless of their race, regardless of gender. They are, we're looking at students as exactly what they are. They are students. They are here to learn. They are here to grow. And we are here to cu cultivate them into developing a sense of pride in their work and an ability to think clearly, think rationally, develop and produce arguments based on what they've experienced. And then eventually use all those tools to develop a career, whatever that may be. That's the overarching goal of what school is supposed to do. And that's what we're trying to instill in our kids. Yeah. A couple of things that I think we're doing is we are teaching, you know, not just the, the stuff we have to learn. We're not learning just the material, just the content. We're learning how do we regulate emotion? How do we understand our emotions and others' emotions? How do we communicate about those things? Because that is a huge piece of it. And then it's how do we communicate about things that are the same as what we've experienced and about the things that are different than what we've experienced, because that's what we're going to run into. That's where a lot of these things are, are abutting. It's that these are differences that we have. And we've always been trained as, as societies to say, what's different is bad. Mm -hmm. And that's where these racial lines are. It's you are different from me. You must be bad. That is our inherent bias immediately. To be truly successful, we have to go, you are different. That may be something I don't know about. I must learn more about it before I make a judgment. Mm -hmm. And it's being able to think about what it is that I'm looking at before judging it and taking away that inherent judgment that we, we kind of come in with. Additionally, I think the other thing, it's having spaces where teachers can communicate and discuss things with students and feel free to challenge ideas and bring up those ideas and challenge them in a space where they feel comfortable doing so and their students feel comfortable doing so. Because if it's an environment where a teacher doesn't feel comfortable, that question is never gonna get raised. Mm -hmm. And if it's an environment where students don't feel comfortable, that question is never gonna be answered. Mm -hmm. And so it's creating these safe spaces, it's communicating and working on the emotional contents. We have the way not only to communicate about it, to regulate our, our emotion about it and to explain our emotion about it, and to talk about it in a cohesive, coherent sense so that we can actually have the conversation as opposed to just reacting instinctively. Mm. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> Paul, what's your PhD say about that? Uh, I concur. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Awesome. yeah, I mean, you know, we've, uh, I, I, I think, you know, Shamar, you and I have talked quite a bit about, you know, a, a, a lot of those things and, and Ashok, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you um, kind of point out a, a lot of those different just dispositions um, that students need to have, especially the social emotional stuff, the ability to self-regulate, the ability to um, advocate for yourself. And again, I, I just think we need schools that provide more of fertile ground where students feel comfortable doing that. And I think too many students right now don't. And so um, I think there's a lot of work that needs to happen on the systems end of it as well. Okay, so my, my trajectory number two that I want to go down shifts gears quite substantially. Um, as an adult, and I really want Shok's perspective on this as well as Paul's, um, 
and you know I'm, I'm speaking Ashok not to the the young people and the stamina that they must you know uh, uphold on a daily basis but more so to um, my brothers and sisters in the uh, the the fight against prejudice, racism, oppression, uh, and those who are consistently um, confronted with the pressures of being responsible for moving all the barriers out of their own ways mm-hmm. to experience their own joy, happiness, uh, success, etc. Uh, and so, the little bit of the story that I wanted to tell is that I had some tough times during COVID. Like there were a couple of months during COVID where, man, it hit the fan and I was going down, like the ship was sinking. Um, there were lots of pressures that were around me, uh, including COVID, but you know, the pressures of uh, experiencing the type of work that I have enhanced the amount of experiences that I had with those who were uh, entering into poverty, with those who were already in poverty, existing greater hardships, with those who um, found themselves in the greatest struggle that they have ever experienced in their lives. And these are the people who um, persist to be the resilient, you know, and are forced to be the resilient in society. They're forced to be um, twice as strong as others because knowingly they're going to get likely half as far as others might, you know, benefit from uh, with regard to their race and um, the privileges they've been advantaged. Uh, So what I want to say is that during that time of hardship for me, uh, I sought out um, therapy from a medical professional. And I'm thinking about your profession in particular, and I've had lots of debates about this in the past and how a part of the formula for uh, wellness is seek therapy or psychiatry or something that's really going to allow you the space to be able to release some pressure, you know, like turn that valve in a different direction to pipe off some of that steam. And, you know, in my experience, and I went to a psychiatrist in my experience, um, uh, in 45 minutes, based on this real low that I was having, I was diagnosed with having uh, depression and given medication for that depression, um, not having had any prior conversation with this individual, this individual not knowing any of my background and history outside of what I just shared. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought it to be just a little odd, you know, and it really helped me to judge whether or not psychiatry is scientific any longer, you know, like I'm a scientist by trade, by, um, by, by what I've studied in college and what, you know, some of my paths have led to. And one of the things that I'm having a hard time understanding is I understand that way back in the day, someone said, if you fit into this box and you have these very particular symptoms or signs, then this is what it means for you, to you. And here's what I should give you in order to eradicate that problem. But as you stated a little bit earlier, that earlier science was not necessarily practiced on black people, brown people, indigenous people, other people outside of those who identify as white. And so the physiology uh, of my entire system and soul and spirit might be different than that of someone else who may have similar problems. So I think what I'm asking is like, 
for those of us who experience having to consistently engage in this holding up the pillar of racial stamina in order to just sustain in life, what should we be looking for by way of seeking out wellness? You know, whether it's wellness in others or whether it's just wellness in general, um, because sometimes I don't trust others, right? So I need to find it for myself. Are there, going back to the strategies, are there strategies that you would recommend for my own personal well-being? You know, I think what you experience and what you just shared there, Shamari, is a very common experience that I've heard from people of color who have gone to a mental health professional. A lot of times they're going to somebody who doesn't look like them, who doesn't know their experiences, can't really relate on that level. And subsequently we walk out of those appointments feeling, what did I just do for an hour or 45 minutes or however long it was? And then you're handed a bottle of pills or you're handed, you know, a sheet with so a couple of things to do that sounds really trivial given the monumental task of trying to make yourself feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think mental health as a whole has historically had a bad rap and to a degree deservedly so. And part of that is some of the things you mentioned that we talked about earlier is that our research has not been exactly scientific, historically speaking. We've had some significant biases. We've had some significant issues in representing cultures and cultural viewpoints in mental health care. It is something that I will say is being rectified and worked on. Are we there yet? Hardly. Are we making progress? Most definitely. And there are things, for example, back in the 1980s, for example, things like homosexuality were seen as an illness. They were not seen as, you know, just a way a person chooses their their life. It was actually in the DSM as an illness. That has changed. But at the same time, there are people who are significantly harmed and affected by that. And that's going to color how they view mental health and mental health care. And rightly so. So I think kind of jumping directly to your question here is what do we do? I think a couple of things is if we are or have that capability of finding people that we trust and can engage in, lean on those people because they're going to lean on us as well. It may be reaching out to those people who we're not quite 100% comfortable with sometimes, but it's reaching out to people who can share experiences or share things that we understand and kind of engage with us on the level that we need. On on a granular level, and this is going to sound kind of hokey, But on a granular level, it's things like making sure we're eating well, sleeping well, exercising. In the midst of this pandemic, we've all been shutting our homes and not going out anywhere. Get outside, exercise, especially now the weather is getting nicer. Mm -hmm. That stuff helps to build our own ability to just feel better. Exercising releases things like endorphins in our brain to help us feel better and we can engage more. Those kinds of things are super important, even if they seem really trivial. On the next step, it's communicating. Like I said, talking to those people that you trust, talking to people that are there. And it may not be in person. It may be a phone call. It may be a video chat with a friend. But talk to those people about what's going on and have those people that you can really be open on in a non-judgmental way as much as possible. Just share. Not necessarily looking for a solution, not necessarily looking for an answer, but just share so we can at least hear our own thoughts so we can kind of think about them and reflect on them a bit more effectively. And then if we do all that and we're still struggling, I still advocate going to see initially probably your medical provider who knows you better, who can make a better recommendation. And if need be, then going to a professional who may not necessarily know you as well. 
at the same time, and I'm going to preface this by saying we are in the midst of a huge mental health crisis in this country. There are not enough psychiatrists, therapists, et cetera, to meet the need that is coming out with this pandemic. So subsequently, getting that mental health care can be a challenge. And we know that for people of color, it is a bigger challenge because those resources aren't necessarily there. And that's where we have to kind of build those systems and utilize the systems that we have to try and reach those populations. That is something that is being worked on, but we're not there yet, as you experienced and talked about. So it's one of those things where it's a process, but it's finding in the short term, it's finding those people that we can lean on, finding ways to kind of help support ourselves. Little things like exercising, journaling is a great way to just kind of write out those thoughts and emotions so that we're out there and we can read them later when we're not in the midst of that emotion, which can be really hard to separate from the rest of our day. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I was mentioning mentioning this to Paul maybe yesterday, the day before, I can't remember. Um, <clears throat> you know, similar to the narrative I just shared, like one of those things that helped me sustain a bit through the summer, you know, as periodic as it was of an experience, like Paul and I uh, found a pathway to connecting through Zoom um, fairly regularly. We began a, uh, a consistent cadence, which you know, for me at the time, whether he knew what was going down or not going down as far as like my mental health or well-being, um, it brought a little levity and a little bit of light to sometimes a very difficult day or week or, you know, uh, uh, outside otherwise experiences. And so um, it was really crucial. And then it started to actually build momentum to uh, an actionable that had a uh, an end goal, which, you know, was very, very in alignment with where my values and my passion are. So I transformed my uh, experience of needing this space to needing this space and it producing something that was aligned directly to uh, an inspiration I have in my soul. And so uh, for me and for those who um, are in positions who are that are similar to mine, Um, where there's stress that comes on a regular basis, having an outlet in a human being who shares value and um, also shares an ability to be able to dialogue and discuss through some of the challenges uh, is sometimes very, very beneficial. So I think for all of us, that human interaction piece is absolutely essential. If we don't have that, it's really hard for us to kind of get out of our own heads and to not feel stuck. And I think that is one of the things that this pandemic has really robbed some people of is that ability to have that social interaction, those connections. Mm -hmm. In a way we have technology, like we have Zoom, we have our phones that are little computers running around in our pockets. We have much better ways of communicating than we did 30, 40, 50 years ago. But at the same time, because we've been so attached to our phones, there is a bit of this disconnect in terms of that human interaction piece. So it's a boon and a bust. And I think in the long run, we need to be able to get back to having these conversations, ideally in person when we're able to do so safely. But in the meantime, being able to have these moments to talk on a Zoom chat or on a phone call, it's something that I think is going to help us buoy and maintain our mental health and our own, our own wellness so that we don't you know, fall off the tracks and fall into the cracks, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. 
Paul, as we get ready to round out this show, are there any words that you want to add or offer um, to the conversation? Um, I guess the only thing I would I would add um, to uh, that conversation that you and Ashok were just having around, you know, um, finding somebody to talk to and all that. I, boy, it's been years now, but I, you know, probably starting in the mid, you know, two thousands, I started going to a psychotherapist, and I and I I, I remember. Um, my expectation walking in was that the first day I would talk to him, he would grab for his prescription pad and write me something, you know, to deal with. I think, you know, I had anger management issues. I was, I had anxiety, all of that. And this particular professional didn't do that. This person said, I'm not going to medicate you. I'm going to talk to you. Right. And so it was like once a week, once every two weeks, I had to show up. I had to keep the meeting. I would roll in and I would just talk. And amidst, you know, 10 years time, my dad passed away. And, you know, had I not been speaking to that person on a regular basis and had a history with them, I'm not so sure how I would have gotten out of my dad's death, you know? And it, it also, that experience also taught me the value of talking through things, the value of deeply listening to somebody when they're telling you something hard. And so in some cases, Shmari, like when you and I started talking last spring, you know, like I, I have so owned this idea that like just talking and listening to somebody who you trust can be super therapeutic. And um, as much as you might've gotten from those conversations, I got just as much because I had somebody outside my wonderful wife and my kids and, you know, who I could connect with and talk you know, talk about work and maybe sometimes not talk about work with. And so that was, it's just, it, it, everything you were saying and everything Ashok was saying just deeply resonated with me. And um, I strongly advocate that kind of just working on yourself kind of state of affairs. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Ashok, um, you have been an absolute rock star, man. Are there things that totally. you want to leave us with today? And, um, in advisement or counseling or just some words of wisdom that are from Mr. Show. Well, first off, I want to say thank you to you guys for inviting me to be part of this show. This was a lot of fun to talk with you guys, a lot of fun, a really interesting, dynamic, and difficult topic. I, I cannot thank you enough for bringing this, and I'm hoping that we get to hear more really cool topics and conversations with you too, because I think it's a treasure to be able to have to be able to engage in this and listen to this and have the space to do so. The biggest thing I advocate or things I think we've kind of harped on throughout this conversation is listen, listen, listen. You never know what someone's going to share with you. You never know what someone's going to talk to you about. You need to be able to willing to listen and open up and be vulnerable in those spaces with somebody else because they're going to be, you know, there are going to be times when people are going to share with you deep, dark, scary, frightening, difficult things. And you need, as an individual who's going to try to be an ally and a support, you need to listen wholeheartedly and reflect and be engaged with that individual because you never know when that's going to happen. And you want to make sure that you're available because if you don't and you shut yourselves down, that person's going to walk. And if we do that, you've lost that opportunity. So the biggest thing, I think the biggest takeaway I have from this is listen, 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 use those ears, use that heart and listen. Yeah. Thank you, man. Um, I think I'll end on the fact that um, 
I know that I have to sustain this high level of stamina. Like it's vital to just my health in general uh, and longevity in this role, but also in life. Um, I don't wish upon others to have to have this amount of stamina that I have to have every day. Um, but I know that you do, uh, especially those of you all who identify as, you know, a population that is BIPOC or those who have been historically minoritized. Uh, I firmly believe that um, a lot of the strength that we have is from um, the ways that we have to maneuver through the world and uh, protect ourselves from being eviscerated um, in every aspect of life. And so I acknowledge you and love you and appreciate all the things you do. You do not have to be upfront um, in order to lead for justice. Um, just continue to take care of your own selves. And uh, some of us will most definitely sustain this journey of riding for insisting that white people take the helm uh, in service of we, the people of color in this particular conversation. And so um, thank you both for the opportunity to have space and to get a few things off of my chest. Uh, I didn't cuss anybody out today, so that's a really good uh, feeling and experience. Um, um, I look forward to more opportunity, Ashok, to uh, have you engage in dialogue and um, be a, a guest to, from your lens, provide input on the subjects that we're going to discuss. And uh, Paul, I love you, of course, and we will continue to journey down this pathway to right wrongs and discover the truth. And so yep. um, with that, thank you all. And uh, we'll live to do this another day. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay tuned for more episodes of Wellness for Educators podcast.